Section 11 of Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 9. The Lost Napoleon. The Lost Napoleon is a part of a mountain range, several miles of it, say six. When you stand at the right viewpoint and look across the plain there, miles away, stretched out on his back under the sky, you see the great Napoleon, sleeping, with his arm folded upon his breast. You recognize him at once, and you catch your breath, and a thrill goes through you from head to foot, a most natural thing to happen, for you have never been so superbly astonished in your life before, and you realize if you live a century, it is not likely that you will ever encounter the like of that tremendous surprise again. You see, it is unique. You have seen mountain ridges before that looked like men lying down, but there was always someone to pilot you to the right viewpoint and prepare you for the show and then tell you which is the head and which the feet and which the stomach and at last you get the idea and say yes now i see it now i make it out it is a man and wonderful too but all this has damaged the surprise and there is not much thrill moreover the man is only a third-rate celebrity, or no celebrity at all. He is no Napoleon the Great. But I discovered this stupendous Napoleon myself, and was caught wholly by surprise. Hence the splendid emotion, the uplifting astonishment. We have all seen mountains that looked like whales, elephants, recumbent lions, correctly figured, too, and a pleasure to look upon. But we did not discover them. Somebody pointed them out to us, and in the same circumstances we have seen and enjoyed stately crags and summits known to the people thereabouts as the old man's head, the elephant's head, Anthony's nose, the lady's head, etc., and we have seen others that were named Shakespeare's head and Satan's head, but still the fine element of surprise was in almost all cases wanting. The lost Napoleon is easily the most colossal and impressive statue in the world. It is several miles long in form and proportions it is perfect. It represents Napoleon himself, and not another. And there is something about the dignity and repose of the great figure that stirs the imagination and half persuades it that this is not an unsentient artifice of nature, but the master of the world sentient and dreaming, dreaming of battle, conquest, empire. I call it the lost Napoleon because I cannot remember just where I was when I saw it. 
My hope in writing this is that I may move some wandering tourist or artist to go over my track and seek for it, seek for it, find it, locate it exactly, describe it, paint it, and so preserve it against loss again. My track was down the Rhone. I made the excursion ten or twelve years ago in the pleasantest season of the year. I took a courier with me, and went from Geneva a couple of hours by rail to the blue little Lake Bourget, and spent the night in a medieval castle on an island in that little lake. In the early morning our boat came for us. It was a roomy open boat, fifteen or twenty feet long, with a single pair of long oars, and with it came its former owner, a sturdy big boatman. The boat was mine now. I think I paid five dollars for it. I was to pay the boatman a trifling daily wage and his keep, and he was to take us all the way down the Rhone to Marseilles. It was warm weather and very sunny, but we built a canvas arch like a wagon cover over the aftermost third of the boat, with a curtain at its rear which could be rolled up to let the breeze blow through, and I occupied that tent and was always comfortable. The sailor sat amidships and manned the oars and the courier had the front third of the boat to himself. We crossed the lake and went winding down a narrow canal bordered by peasant houses and vineyards, and after about a league of this navigation we came in sight of the Rhone, a troubled gray stream which went tearing past the mouth of the peaceful canal at a racing gait. We emerged into it and laid in the oars. We could go fast enough in that current without artificial aid. During the first days we slipped along down the curving bends at a speed of about five miles an hour, but it slackened later. Our days were all about alike. About four in the afternoon we tied up at a village and I dined on the greensward in front of the inn by the water's edge, on the choicest chickens, vegetables, fruit, butter, and bread, prepared in French perfection, and served upon the whitest linen, and as a rule I had the friendly house cat and dog for guests and company, and willing and able helpers. I slept in the inn often in clean and satisfactory quarters, sometimes in the same room with the cows and the fleas. I breakfast on the lawn in the morning with cat and dog again, then laid in a stock of grapes and other fruits gathered fresh from the garden, and some bottles of red wine made on the premises. And at eight or nine we went floating down the river again. At noon we went ashore at a village, bought a freshly caught fish or two, had them broiled, got some bread and vegetables, and set sail again at once. 
We always lunched on board as we floated along. I spent my days reading books, making notes, smoking, and in other lazy and enchanting ways, and had the delightfulest ten-day voyage I have ever experienced. It took us ten days to float to Arles. There the current gave out, and I closed the excursion and returned to Geneva by rail. It was twenty-eight miles to Marseille, and we should have been obliged to row. That would not have been pleasure. It would have meant work for the sailor, and I do not like work even when another person does it. I think it was about the eighth day that I discovered Napoleon. My notes cover four or five days. There they stop. The charm of the trip had taken possession of me, and I had no energy left. It was getting toward four in the afternoon, time to tie up for the day. Down ahead on the right bank I saw a compact jumble of yellowy-browny cubes stacked together, some on top of the others, and no visible cracks in the mass, and knew it for a village. A village common to that region down there, a village jammed together without streets or alleys, substantially, where your progress is mainly through the houses, not by them, and where privacy is a thing practically unknown. A village which probably hadn't had a house added to the jumble for five hundred years. We were anywhere from half a mile to a mile above the village when I gave the order to proceed to that place and tie up. Just then I glanced to my left toward the distant mountain range and got that soul-stirring shock which I have said so much about. I pointed out the grand figure to the courier and said, Name it. Who is it? Napoleon. Yes, it is Napoleon. Show it to the sailor and ask him to name it. The sailor said, Napoleon. We watched the figure all the time then until we reached the village. We walked up the river bank in the morning to see how far one might have to go before the shape would materially change, but I do not now remember the result. We watched it afterward as we floated away from the village, but I cannot remember at what point the shape began to be marred. However, the mountains being some miles away, I think that the figure would be recognizable as Napoleon along a stretch of as much as a mile above and a mile below the village, though I think that the likeness would be strongest at the point where I first saw it, that is, half a mile or more above the village. We talked the grand apparition over at great length and with a strong interest. I said I believed that if its presence were known to the world, such 
shoals of tourists would come flocking there to see it that all the spare ground would soon be covered with hotels and i think so yet i think it would soon be the most celebrated natural curiosity on the planet that it would be more visited than niagara or the alps and that all the other famous natural curiosities of the globe would fall to a rank away below it i think so still there is a line of lumbering and thundering great freight steamers on the rhone and i think that if some man will board one of them at arles and make a trip of some hours upstream say from three to six and keep an eye out to the right and watch that mountain range he will be certain to find the lost napoleon and have no difficulty in rediscovering the mighty statue when he comes to the right point it will cost nothing to make the experiment and i hope it will be done note mark twain's biographer rediscovered it in nineteen thirteen it is some miles below valence opposite the village of beauchatel end of chapter nine the lost napoleon read by john greenman